can open your Bibles to a couple places in the New Testament to begin with. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And in your other hand, I presume your right hand, you can get Hebrews chapter 5. We'll begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse number 12, and then we'll skip over to Hebrews chapter 5. And before we get into the biltong of the Bible, tonight we're dealing with a meaty subject. Amen. We're, we're going to go deeper than we normally would in, uh, in a live stream Bible study. And for those of you that might be new with us, maybe you've just started following us uh, during the lockdown time and found us on YouTube uh, I would strongly suggest if you want to get the milky version of this information, we have a, a discipleship book that we offer through the church. It's called I Have Found the Book, and you can contact our, our church email. It's, it's on our website, bbcpotch.com. You can get all the information there. But uh, tonight we're going to go deep. We're going to look at types and fi figures and similitudes and and uh, real, we're going to cover the entire Old Testament tonight in one lesson, by the grace of God. So before we get into this, let's bow our heads together and ask for God's help, because we're sure going to need it. Father, thank you for these wonderful songs. And what a blessing it is tonight to be grounded, firm and, and true, Lord, on the solid rock. And uh, Lord, we thank you for this book that we have before us. What a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, it declares to us your love. And Lord, it, it goes so deep. There's just no, there's no way we can plumb the depths of this book. I pray that you'd speak to us tonight. Lord, I've, I've just been impressed with what you've shown me just through studying this the last couple of days. I pray that you'd please also touch the hearts of those listening, open our understanding. God, this is deep, and uh, there's no way we can get it if you don't help us. Please enlighten us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12. Paul is comparing in this passage, in this chapter, the Old and the New Testament. And he says in verse 12, Seeing then that we have such hope. That is, through the New Testament, we know exactly what God's plan is for us as individuals. So we, we know for sure. We have His promise. We use great plainness of speech. So Jesus came, He revealed the will of God, the character of God, salvation of God, all of that made possible, made clear. Verse 13, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. The reason I'm starting here is I want you to see that Paul recognized when you re read the Old Testament and you don't have the New Testament, the Old Testament by itself is a great story, but it's not a complete story. The New Testament, you have Jesus coming, living, dying, buried, resurrected. Then you have the Pauline epistles. You have the other apostles writing. You have the book of Revelation. We have had God's plan completely revealed to us now. So we can speak very plainly about the things He's revealed. But when you look at the Old Testament, those people that lived in that time, they had in their hands a great wealth of knowledge, but they could not look to the end of those things. 
I'm going to show you in Hebrews just now. They had types, they had pictures, they had figures, they had similitudes. But as they read it, as they read the Old Testament, it was just a lot of historical stories, a lot of laws, precepts, commandments, judgments, so forth. They could not see everything that we can now see. Let me show you this in Hebrews. Come to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 and verse number 10. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 10. Now I'm going to move quickly tonight. Uh, please, if, if you need extra time to find a verse, by all means, hit pause, find the verse, and then continue on. But because I, I don't want to carry on and on, I'm not aiming for a specific time to finish. I just want to go through all the information. But uh, I do want to keep it moving. So Hebrews 5 and verse 10. Uh, it says here, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now this guy Melchizedek, whew, a lot of people ask about him. Chapter 7 explains why the writer of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek. But Jesus, he, he comes in the priestly line of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, but I, uh, if you've been through Hebrews class in our Bible school, I explain there's, there's different views on that. I'm going to say that it's Paul. But whoever the author was, they are going to use Melchizedek's story from the Old Testament and show how he was a picture or a figure of Christ. Melchizedek was just a, a man that lived back in the book of, uh, of Genesis in those days. He was a high priest in those times. Uh, he was a real man, just like any other man. He, people say maybe that was Seth, maybe it was Enoch, you know, come back, reincarnated, that kind of thing. I, I think Melchizedek, this is deep here, is Melchizedek. But I believe when you read his story, he is a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to go back into the Old Testament, read Genesis 14 and see how Melchizedek, there's only two or three verses about him. To read in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek and then say that's a picture of Christ, you have to have a firm foundation in the Bible. You have to really know what you're doing. That is going deep. That is not the milk of the Word. The milk of the Word, that, those are things that are easy to digest, right? That's straightforward plainness of speech. Here's how it works. God did this. You do that. It works out like this. Straightforward. When you get to the milk, or the meat of the Word, rather, that means you've already gone through the milk stage. You have those basic things, those straightforward truths. And now the meat of the Word, those that are able to digest the meat, more mature, they can handle the tough stuff. They take those basic truths, go back into the Old Testament, read these true historical stories, and they see types and pictures of all those basic truths being revealed through the history we have in the Bible. Watch what he says in verse 11, "...of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered." He said, I'm going to say some deep things. It's, good. it's difficult to explain it all. "...seeing ye are dull of hearing." What's so difficult about Melchizedek? If, if you're grounded in the characteristics of Jesus Christ, then you can go back in the Old Testament and find types and pictures of Him all over the place. The problem was, as He was addressing these people, is they were dull of hearing. They had been taught, but they didn't properly digest the milk, evidently, because they, they weren't grasping at all. 
So he says, I got a lot of things to say. It's hard to be uttered because when I say it, I'm afraid you're not going to get it because you haven't mastered those basic principles. Verse 12, for when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles or words of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Strong meat, what's that? That's biltong, amen. Now, just perchance, I assume that most of our viewers tonight are South Africans. Uh, every now and again, we do have an American who tunes in. So for any non-South African, biltong, um, it's like the national food for South Africa, probably. It's like beef jerky if you're an American, but better, right? Biltong, I'm sorry, it just is better, but there's no need for me to explain biltong to South Africans. You guys know it better than me. You guys give it to your babies, right? They, they sit there gnawing, gnawing on biltong from the time they're just a few months old. Uh, but strangely enough, you guys give biltong to the babies, but when it comes to the spiritual things, you all, there's a lot of grown men that can't handle the biltong. Verse 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, they're mature, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So they've been using the book, they've been using the book to, to judge things, to discern between good and evil, say that's right, this is wrong, whether it's a moral issue a doctrinal, a theological issue, whatever it is. All right, look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 1. So now he's going to talk about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now that you read in Genesis 14. Now look what he does in verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being uh, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. So the author of Hebrews takes the name Melchizedek, breaks it down, and finds a type in, in the name. Melchizedek, that Hebrew name, means king of righteousness. Right? Well, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. He is the king of righteousness. And, and after that, also king of Salem. Watch the order. That's important. You cannot have Salem, which is peace. That's the word for peace. You can see it at the end of verse 2, which is king of peace. So Salem, Salam, Shalom, that's a Hebrew word for peace. So that's where he was from. Melchizedek was from Salem. So he was Melchizedek. That word means king of righteousness. He's from Salem. So he's king of peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. How do you get peace with God? You have to be justified by the blood of Christ. So... In this way, his name and where he's from makes him a picture of Christ. And uh, forgive me, we're not going to explain Melchizedek tonight. Just look down to verse 15. Verse 15. And it is yet far more evident for that after thee, get the next word, similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. What are we dealing with in this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a picture of Christ, a similitude, a figure. Look at it in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and get verse number 17. Hebrews 11 and verse 17. We have the story here from Genesis 22 
when Abraham was commanded by God to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now you say, but he had two begotten sons. Read it carefully, because in Genesis 21... God told Abraham, send Ishmael away. So the only begotten son that Abraham had left in Genesis 22 was Isaac. So the Bible is perfectly legit in what it's saying here. Uh, Offered up his only begotten son, verse 18, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So when God said deliver Isaac and, and sacrifice him, Abraham could have argued and said, but wait a minute, God, you said that you would raise up a a, a multiplied seed through Isaac. But if I put him to death, how can you do that? So when the writer of Hebrews looks at that story, you know what he gathers from this? Abraham must have believed in God's ability to raise the dead. Because God can't lie. God promised through Isaac you'll have this abundant seed, this you know, a multiplied seed. So if I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, then God's going to have to raise him up. Now, of course, we know how the story turned out, but the picture of what potentially could have happened as Abraham ascended the mount with his son is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Verse 19 from whence also he received him in a figure. Isaac is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if you go back in Genesis 22 and really read it through, you find that Isaac was carrying wood as he went up that hill. And he asked his father, We have wood, we have fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. The English in that is very interesting because you can read it one of two ways. Historically, right, I think Abraham simply saying God is going to provide a, a lamb. God, God will give us the sacrifice we need. But prophetically speaking, God will provide himself a lamb. That is, God came down in human form and offered himself as the lamb of God. It's very rich. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 9. Chapter 13, verse 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Diverse, different. He says, guys, don't don't get carried away. Don't get blown about by all these strange and different teachings. You hear lots of people coming with things that they thought up, with their systems that they put together. And a lot of people do this. They create a philosophy or or a systematic way of thinking, and then they try to read it into the Bible. Yeah? And you got to be real careful of that, because sometimes it'll make a lot of sense or some sense, but then there'll be some problems with it. He says, guys, don't get carried away. Now now watch the next part carefully. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with what? With grace. You know what? Before you start trying to tackle and take on and digest the meat... You better get that straightforward stuff. You better get the system of grace. Get established in that. Know how the grace of God works. Know how uh, it is offered. Know what God has promised. 
You know how you have access into this grace wherein we stand. You know how far reaching the grace of God is that once you become saved, you are in Christ and nothing can separate you from Him. Get established in that. Once you get established in that, when somebody tries to bring a strange or different doctrine, you can judge that, you can discern between good and evil based on, based on that straightforward truth you've already received. Now, he says, For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. You don't start with meat. You don't start with types, pictures, similitudes, figures. You don't start there. You first have to have straightforward truth. What is going on? What did God say would happen? Right? Straightforward stuff. Once you have that down, then you go from milk to meat. Different level of protein, right? Both offers protein, but it's a different level. It takes more digestion for the second kind. So first get the straightforward stuff. Know how it operates. Then we'll get meats. He says, not with meats, which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. Some people, they want to skip all the simple stuff. They don't want to go through the milk. They don't want to get the verses that support the straightforward teachings. All they want to do is find these, these Bible codes. You know, let's, let's you know, see how these numbers line up and how many letters and how many words. And, and, and let's see if we, it's the third letter and the third word of the third line and the third paragraph. And it, I'm all for interesting little nuggets. I, those things catch my eye. I, 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 I listen up when I hear somebody talking about them. But you can't build a Christian life off of that stuff. That cannot be your foundation. I'm, I'm glad Garrett gave us that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Jesus said that the rock that we build the house on are His saints. So we take those very basic things. We've covered that, haven't we? In the last what, 17 sermons I've done in, in, in the book of Matthew, we covered the Sermon on the Mount. That's straightforward stuff. Get established in that. Don't try to make a foundation out of the meat, right? First, know the basics. But once you do, once you get that, then you can go on to the meats. Then you can start looking for types and pictures of these well-established facts. And that's what we're going to do tonight. I am going to use the Old Testament, right? And show you throughout the Old Testament how it offers pictures and types of what is going to transpire in the New Testament. Now you're going to have to be familiar. Let me see if I can work this out in there. Can you see it? Everybody can see that? You're going to have to be familiar with this diagram. Those of you that have been in the church for a while, you know exactly what this uh, timeline is. We have the Old Testament over here, the law, and then you have the cross, then you have the church age, which is approximately 2,000 years. You have the rapture, then up here in heaven, forgive me, that's the best I can do to draw heaven. And then after seven years of tribulation, we come back with Christ. And then there are a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning on this earth. We reign with Him. And then I've, I've drawn that line because after the thousand years, heaven and earth flee away. And then you enter into eternity. Now, if, you, if you're not familiar with this diagram, you might want to hit pause and just draw it, draw it out so that you can follow along. I don't want to obviously hold this up and... It's going to get weird, right? Uh, these numbers, I'll, I'll come back to that in a little while. That, that's for something else a little later. 
But for now, take your Bible. Let's come back to the book of Genesis. Let's get Genesis chapter 50. Now, some of this, you guys, you got to forgive me because if we really took our time, we could be here three or four hours. I kid you not. If you really wanted to dig into all the types. And uh, I have no intention of keeping you that long. I can't talk that long anymore. But some things I'll just mention. Other things I'm going to stop and, and show you scripture. Some of these things I think you're already familiar with. But in the book of Genesis, it starts off everything is exactly the way God wants it. right? And God said, and God said, that's chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How did He do it? And God said, and God said, and God said, all things are held together by His Word. All things consist by His Word and His power. So He puts it out there, and it's upright. It's perfect. It's pure. It's exactly the way God wants it. Man enters in, and it doesn't take long for man to mess it up. What a wonderful picture of reality. And as you go through the book of Genesis, you see how God reaches out to humanity and reveals Himself in various ways. The book starts off, everything is exactly the way God ordered it. Look at where the book ends up. Genesis 50, verse 26. Look at the last verse in the book of Genesis. So Joseph died. It starts off, chapter 1, God created life, and it ends up with death. Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book of Genesis ends in a coffin. It ends in death. Now we understand that in the Bible there are there are there are two deaths, right? We read about the first death which is a physical death. The second death is mentioned in in the book of Revelation. That's the lake of fire. Uh, that's an eternal death. But we also read, and I'm going to say a third kind of death, right? You don't read in the Bible about a third death, but it's, it's another kind of death, and that is a spiritual death. We are dead in trespasses and sins. So when you read Genesis, God made man upright, but then because of man's sin, he dies and he's in a coffin. That's where Genesis ends up. You know what Exodus is all about? The book of Exodus is all about a deliverance. It's about redemption and deliverance. It's about getting God's people out of bondage. They are in bondage to, to Pharaoh, which is a picture of Satan, which is a picture of sin. And it is through the blood of the Lamb. Can you see the picture in this? The Passover Lamb. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover. The blood of the Lamb allows the Israelites, that's the last thing that you read in Exodus 12 before they exit the book of Exodus, before they exit out of Egypt. Right after they get out of Egypt, they head out into the wilderness. God takes care of them in several miraculous ways. But then they head out to Mount Sinai. They have the Ten Commandments and God is revealing right, His ways to them. And wouldn't you know it, the last part of Exodus, this is where most people stop reading, they start to build the tabernacle from chapter 25 to chapter 40. It's all about the tabernacle. You know what God wants? God made man upright, wanted to have fellowship. Man sinned, lost that fellowship, ends up dead in sin in a coffin. 
but there's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. And then God wants to reveal to you the way you ought to walk. But it is crucial that you get over to the house of God. God spends several chapters talking about how to build the tabernacle, which is where you can go and publicly gather with other like-minded believers and be ministered to by people that God has chosen and put in their particular positions. So get saved, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, go to church, spend time, get it established. The book of Leviticus, that's the next book in your Bible. You know what it's all about? The book of Leviticus is all about holy living, sanctified living. Now, when you read Leviticus, remember that it's, it's written for Jewish, Jewish people, it's written in the Old Testament it's to make them peculiar. It's not that we have to follow everything in Leviticus for our daily lives now, but the purpose of the book of Leviticus was to sanctify, set apart, to make holy the people of God, both the priesthood and the common man. That's all that you have in Leviticus. It's all about a, a ministry of holiness. Man sins, ends up in a coffin, deliverance through the blood, head over to church, get established, holy living, walking with God. That comes, that brings us to the book of Numbers. When you get into the book of Numbers, it is a journal. The book of Numbers is a journal. It is a, it's a record of how Israel journeyed through the wilderness. And you have several times that they count the people, hence the name Numbers. They count the people and they make ready, if we go to war, this many people will go. If we have this service, this many people will go. And they get organized. And it's a record of how they marched to this place and this place, how they sent spies into the land. You read about some of their mistakes. It is a perfect picture, right, of what's happened with the body of Christ. Man was in sin. The lamb came, sacrificed the blood, that the blood was made available, and he established a church, and he gave them ordinances, and he gave them his word, Right? All of this has happened in the New Testament. You can see how when somebody was reading this and going through this in the Old Testament, they had no idea that, that this was all a type and picture of what we're going to do in the New Testament, but it is. Come to Numbers chapter 29. Numbers chapter 29. Now, in the book of Numbers, it's a journey, and the body of Christ has been on this journey, walking with God through the wilderness of this world, trying to reach the promised land. Yeah. Oh, today, if we might reach that promised land. Now, remember, Israel, at this point, they are still in the land of the Gentiles. They have not come into their promised land yet, the land of Canaan. They have not reached that promised land. They're wandering around in the land of the Gentiles. Just like the body of Christ now, the church is wandering around in this world. Yeah? We are in the, in, in the times of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus called this time we're in right now. And just as Israel was pressing towards the promised land, we are pressing towards heaven. Now, when you get the book of Numbers, 
there are 36 chapters. Now, I, I got to thinking about this. I believe, I believe, and, I, and I've taught this in church. I, recently, I posted a video on our YouTube page about the various views on the tribulation. Some people believe it's seven years. Some people believe it's three and a half. Some people think the rapture happens right in the middle of the seven years. Several different ideas about that. I believe that the church is going to be raptured out seven years before the second coming of Christ. Right? If I can say it like this, there'll be a rapture, there will be seven years of tribulation time, that's the name we give to the troublous time, and then Jesus comes back. So that's the chart here. Rapture, seven years of tribulation, Jesus comes back. So I, taking that knowledge, I looked in the book of Numbers. There are 36 chapters. So if you take chapter 36 and start counting backwards, 36, 35, 34, all the way down to 30. Those are that seven chapters. Seven chapters. So I'm going to take seven chapters, one for each year of the tribulation. Let's see if right before the seven years of tribulation, we find something indicative of what might happen. Look at Numbers 29. Now this is right before the last seven chapters of Numbers. This is the last part of the journey. Uh, Numbers 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, ye shall have an holy convocation. You'll have a sanctified meeting, a sanctified gathering. You know what the Bible calls the rapture? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, it's called our gathering together unto Him, a holy convocation. It says, at the end of this verse, ye shall do no servile work. That's right, our work will be over. The day of the rapture, our work is over. Off we, hit, off we go to heaven. It says, it is a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. Amen. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and off we go. There, there's two blasts, two trumpet sounds made. It says, a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. And then you head into seven years of wrapping up, of, of pressing into this tribulation time. You know what happens right after this? In Deuteronomy, it come to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is about to die. Moses is about to die. Look at Deuteronomy 4. And he is preparing Israel for a battle that they're about to endure. Now, historically, they're pressing into the promised land. They're pressing into their kingdom. But look what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4. Now, we're talking in pictures and types and figures. So I'm taking the book of Numbers. At the end of it, there's a picture, a figure of the rapture. Seven chapters or seven years. You have the timing there. And then Deuteronomy 4. The, this is Moses wrapping up his ministry. He says verse number 30. Am I in the right verse? Yeah, Deuteronomy 4 verse 30. It says, When thou art in tribulation. Now Moses is just talking about trouble. Right? When we talk about it, we put a capital T on it because it's the name of a time period. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. Hmm. Moses. 
He's not just talking about what's about to happen. He's talking prophetically something way down the road. But the Israelites couldn't see the end of all of this. They didn't, they didn't have the revelation we now have. He says, If thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, and so on. He, and Moses gives them the various warnings. Now throughout the book of Deuteronomy, get ready guys, you're going to face some very troublous times. Tribulation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 31. You see, right after the rapture, during those seven years of tribulation, Israel is under attack. Israel is under attack, especially the latter half of, that, of those seven years. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, get verse 29. 31-29. He says, For I know that after my death, ye will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because ye will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. You know what chapter 32 is? All the way down to verse 43, it is the Song of Moses. Now, do any of you remember the Song of Moses from the New Testament? That's mentioned in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. You know what's happening in Revelation 15, 3? The people that overcame the mark of the beast, they didn't take it. They died for it. They died because they wouldn't take the mark. They're up in heaven and they sing two songs. They sing the Song of the Lamb. And they sing the song of Moses. Why? Because they had to take Moses' advice about the latter days. They found themselves in that tribulation time. Now, did you know that Moses is going to show up again in the tribulation time? Revelation chapter 11, verses 7, 8, and 9, and even 10, it talks about the death of Moses, and he's going to be accompanied by Elijah. Those are the two witnesses. Uh, that Revelation 11 speaks of. Moses is going to come to the earth. He's going to preach to Israel, preach to the world for that matter, and he will die. You know what we're reading in Deuteronomy 30? Uh, th 34? 30, yeah, 34 at the end of the book? The death of Moses. You see how this correlates? How What we have in Deuteronomy, yes, it's history, but there's a prophetical picture hidden in this. It's the meteor part. You've got to chew a little more to get this out. So Deuteronomy 34 ends up with the death of Moses. That puts us right at the end of the tribulation time. Revelation 11, Moses' death happens, I want to say days, very, very shortly before Jesus comes back, uh, which brings us to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, look at verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. This is God speaking to Joshua. Go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. You know what Jesus does when he comes back? He comes back, he gets down off of his horse, he's in the midst of the land of Israel, and he starts stomping on the, on the enemies. Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 19. He stomps the winepress of the wrath of God. And everywhere that the sole of his foot treads, that's his land. That's his land. By the way, I'm sure most of you know this, but the Old Testament spelling for the word Jesus 
is Joshua. Right? So what you have at the end of the book of Numbers, blowing of trumpets, picture of the rapture, seven chapters later, the book of Deuteronomy explains what's going to happen in that tribulation time. Get ready. You're going to need the, the wisdom of this song that Moses teaches you. Moses dies. Joshua comes in and he is the conquering king. He comes in and conquers the enemy and gives Israel their land. This is exactly, exactly the way it's lined out exactly how it's going to happen in the future. They couldn't have seen that when they wrote this down in the Old Testament. People living in this time couldn't have seen it, but we can see it now. Now, the Bible kind of hits the reset button right here, and we're going to go back and again see another picture of New Testament truth being revealed through these Old Testament stories. In Deuteronomy, right, Moses offers or let's say gives the law to the people of Israel. Now, the, the word Deuteronomy, it is a Greek word. It's actually two Greek words. Deutero is second, and the word namas is the Greek word for law. So Deuteronomy or Deuteronomium. Did I say it right in Afrikaans? Deuteronomium. I worked on that word for a long time years ago. I, I think I still got it right. But that, that word means the second giving of the law. Yeah? So Moses gives the law. But Moses did not bring the people of God into the promised land. What does that tell me? The law is limited. The law cannot get you all the way into the land. Moses dies. He's temporary. He fades away. But who is the one that comes to fulfill the promise given to Abraham and his seed? Joshua. What Moses was not able to do, Moses fell short. Joshua was able to do. Jesus comes and he brings victory. He picks up where the law ended, ended off. So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Come to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. So throughout the book of Joshua, you read about how he conquers the enemy, how he gives victory. And then how he establishes the people of God in the land. He offers boundaries. He gives them right precepts and teaching and establishes them. This is what happens with us, right? The law can only bring us so far. It can't save you, but it can bring you to the one who can save you. It brings you, Moses can get you to Joshua, right? Joshua will help you get established. But then Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, he says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Then he offers you a choice. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You, you, do you know what we have? Oh, this is so rich, so deep. You know what we have? in the system of grace that, that exists in the New Testament, you have a choice. You are no longer in bondage to your sinful nature. You've been set free from that. But 
every day you have to die to yourself, crucify the flesh, and yield your members as servants unto righteousness. Every day you have a choice. The picture is just amazing. That brings us to the book of Judges. The people of God made some very poor choices. Throughout the book of Judges, you know, they're constantly in trouble. They're constantly backsliding. They end up in apostasy over and over and over again. Uh, you do read several times where God uses a particular man. In, in the Bible, they're called Judges. They rise up. God raises them up and uses them to deliver Israel from their Gentile oppressors. Do you know there have been many times that the body of Christ, corporately speaking, as, as a whole, has fallen into ill repute, into apostasy. And God has used men and used movements throughout church history. There have been revivals that have popped up and, and, and I want to say revived the body of Christ. It was always there, but sometimes it had fallen under the pressure of the world. But it keeps falling into apostasy over and over again. And the book of Judges come to the end of it. The very last chapter, very last verse. Judges. Great picture of the church age. All right, great, great picture of this. Starts off strong and ends up in apostasy. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, In the latter days some shall depart from the faith. He said in 2 Timothy 3 verse uh, is it uh, 13, I think? 2 Timothy 3 verse, is it 12? Or, uh, 13, 13. Uh, For evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Things get bad. Judges 21 verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They didn't have a final authority. Everybody just did what they thought was right. They did what they wanted to do. You know where we're at? In the church age right now, what the book of Revelation would call the Laodicean church, where we say to Christ, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I don't need you to tell me what to do. You know what Jesus says to that church? You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel thee therefore to buy of me gold tried in a fire and white raiment and eyes, anoint your eyes with eye salve. Be zealous therefore and repent. Christ has to try, He's trying to give counsel to this church. Why? Because everybody's doing what they want to do. It's a perfect picture. It matches perfectly. The book of Ruth. Now, the, the story of Ruth happens some, at some point in the time of the judges. We're not sure when. But because of the way it's ordered in our Bible, I'm going to say that it happens towards the end. I'm using it as a picture. Look at Ch uh, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Ruth 1 and verse 1. So the world wants us to do it their way. The world says, do it, do it in a way that's acceptable to everyone. Just as long as you don't do it God's way. And then we get into the book of Ruth, chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, a famine. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
Do you know what the word Bethlehem... Now, Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem was a city of Judah. There are actually uh, a couple different Bethlehems. So that's why they say Bethlehem, Judah, because there's a Bethlehem elsewhere, as, uh, uh, another Bethlehem elsewhere. So Bethlehem, Judah. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. But there was a famine in the land. The house of bread ran out of bread. An alternate translation for the word Bethlehem is house of meat. But there was a famine. They ran out of food. They ran out of food. So in the book of Ruth, it fits in perfectly with the, with the atmosphere of the book of Judges. Complete apostasy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, but there's a famine in the land. This should be the house of bread. The body of Christ, the church, should be feeding its people with the bread, with the meat, with the milk of the word, but there's a famine. So people are going elsewhere to get fed. They're going out to the world, to Moab. Enter Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile. But she eventually, now forgive me, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Ruth, we just don't have time, but she eventually comes back to the land of Israel and meets a man named Boaz. Boaz, he's an upright Jewish man. His name means strength within him. He contains strength. He is a picture of Christ because in Ruth chapter 4, he is the kinsman redeemer. Right? There's a, there was a family relationship that you read about in the book of Ruth that connected Boaz, or, uh, yeah, connected Boaz to Ruth's family. A very distant connection, but it allowed him to redeem that portion of the inheritance that was connected to Ruth. And Boaz redeems Ruth. Boaz, an upright Jew, redeems this outcast Gentile that had decided to submit herself in this foreign land. It is a picture of an upright Jew, Jesus, redeeming, paying for, paying the price for we outcast Gentiles. So you see this in Ruth chapter 4, verse 6. Do you see it here? And the kinsman said, this was another relative that could have taken advantage of this opportunity. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. He didn't want to be involved with Gentiles. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So therefore, Boaz steps in and says, I'll, I'll pay. How wonderful. Jesus stepped in and said, I'll pay. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. After the payment is made, Ruth, is not, she now belongs to Boaz. Jesus gave Himself for the church. After redemption comes this, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And he went in unto her, and gave, the Lord gave her conception. She bare a son, and, and th this eventually ends up with David. Right? This is the great-great-grandfather of David. But I want you to see, it says Boaz took Ruth. After he redeemed her, then he took her. First, Jesus comes and dies on the cross. Later, He takes us home to a wedding. He takes us home to a wedding. One day, Jesus will come and take us home, get us ready for the wedding. Now, that's the book of Ruth. When you get into 1 Samuel, 
while the Gentile bride has been taken away by the upright Jewish man for this proper marriage, we have the, the, the end part of the time of the judges in 1 Samuel. Samuel, by the way, was the last judge of Israel. And in, the, in 1 Samuel, the first few chapters, you read about how Israel has gone just completely astray. Look at 1 Samuel 3, verse 2. 1 Samuel 3, verse 2. So while the Gentile bride is being taken by Boaz, rapture, right after that you have a picture of the condition of Israel in the last days. Remember Romans 11, verse 25? I told you we're going to move tonight. Eh? Romans 11, verse 25 says that Israel has been given blindness. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Blindness. Look at 1 Samuel 3, verse 2. And it came to pass at that time when Eli... Eli was the high priest of Israel. So he represents the spiritual condition of the nation. It says, It came to pass when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Do you see that? Israel, what is their spiritual condition? They're blind. They cannot see. Tremendous. You know what they tell Samuel a few chapters later? Samuel, we don't want God to rule over us. Give us a man to rule over us like all the nations. They wanted to be, they wanted to be part of everybody else. You know what's going to happen right after the rapture? Israel, still in this spiritual condition of blindness, they are going to make a covenant with the world. They are going to create a peace treaty so that they can have their land. You know what ends up happening? They take on the Antichrist. That's what's going to happen in the future. You know what, in, you know what happened in 1 Samuel? Right after they told Samuel, give us a king like all the nations, God said, give them what they deserve. They ask him for a king, tell them how bad it's going to be and let them have it. And they got it. You know who they got? Saul. And Saul turns out to be one of the greatest pictures of the Antichrist in the entire Bible. At first, Saul looks like he's going to be all right. Have you read the story? Have you read 1 Samuel? He, he wins a few battles. You think, man, this guy, yeah, he, he might actually turn out to be a man of God. Do you know that's exactly what people are going to think about the Antichrist? At first, people say, this guy's brought world peace. This, this is a great man. He actually might uh, be able to help. It won't take long. It won't take long. Saul goes bad, and we know what happens. God gives Saul a couple of tasks. He fails greatly. He, he does most of it, but not all of it. He does it his way, and God rejects him. And that's chapter 15. And right after that, God says, All right, we need to go get David. Now, you know what happens. They go out to find David, and God anoints David, right? He sends Samuel out there. Samuel anoints him, and David is anointed. He is the heir to the throne. Saul won't recognize that. He, he, Saul's going to fight against it. He's going to throw javelins at him. And David becomes a picture of the Jewish remnant that the Antichrist is going to attack in the last half of these seven years. For three and a half years, 
the Antichrist is going to chase the Jews in the wilderness and try to, to wipe them all out. You read this in Revelation chapter 12. Do you know what you read at the latter half of 1 Samuel? Saul chasing David through the wilderness. Look at Revelation 12. It, it, forgive me, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to look at it later, Revelation 12 verse 6, it uses the word wilderness. I think it's a couple times in Revelation 12. The Antichrist chases them through the wilderness. So 1 Samuel, David represents, and by the way, David had a small remnant. He had about 600 people going with him, a little remnant hiding out there in the wilderness. And by the way, David and his men had to hide outside of the borders of Israel. And in the future, that little remnant of Jews that is going to be chased out of the land, they're going to hide just outside the borders of Israel. Tremendous picture. But by the time you get to the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. You know what you have in Revelation 19? The Antichrist dies. The Antichrist dies. And after he dies, then Christ is established as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You get that at the end of Revelation 19, at the beginning of and chapter 20. You read about Christ reigning on this earth. You know what you have in 2 Samuel? After the death of Saul, David gets established on the throne and rules over Israel. And not only does he take on the land of Israel, a lot of people miss this. I think it's in 2 Samuel 8 that David goes all the way over to the river Euphrates and reclaims all that land that was promised to Abraham. So what was considered land uh, or let's say Gentile land, David went and took all that. Did you know when Christ comes back, he not only establishes himself as king of the Jews, but king of kings. He expands his kingdom. Now, all through the book of 2 Samuel, you have David fighting battle after battle after battle because David is a picture of Jesus as the conquering king. He comes back, fights the battle of Armageddon, and conquers the world with pouring out the wrath of God, the righteous indignation of God. He's a conquering king, and David is a picture of this warrior king. But then we get into 1 Kings. Right? David passes away, and in chapter 2, right, that David's gone now. By chapter 3, you have Solomon reigning. And for the first part of, of 1 Kings, it's all about Solomon getting established. Solomon is also a picture of Christ, but in a different way. David is a picture of the warrior Christ, the conquering king. Solomon is a picture of the millennial Christ that has sat down on the throne of his father, David, and now he's right, king of righteousness, David. He judged righteously. King of peace. Did you know the word Solomon means peace? And did you know that in the days of Solomon there was not one war? Not one. Not one. He is a picture of the millennial kingdom. That's what David's a picture of. Uh, uh, forgive me, Solomon. He's a picture of the millennial kingdom. Peace in his day. Not one war. But Solomon, it doesn't end well. Now, Solomon, this, this is where we have to be careful, right? Types and pictures. Solomon is a picture of Christ, but only to a certain extent. Solomon made some mistakes. We know that. And Solomon's kingdom ended up 
in a mess. Did you know that at the end of the millennium, the Bible says in Revelation 20, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and he will deceive the nations one more time and they will actually surround Jerusalem and try to overthrow the kingdom. The millennial kingdom ends up in a mess. Now, it's not Jesus' fault. With Solomon, it was. But there's still a mess to be dealt with. So it's right there after 1 Kings. When we get into 2 Kings, we have another reset where the Bible hits the reset button and, and we now go back and we start to look at things again through types and pictures. 2 Kings talks about how the Jews went further and further into apostasy. With each king, it just got worse and worse and worse. It, Second Kings tells you about the overthrow of Israel. It talks about the overthrow of Judah. By this time, the kingdom is split into two. And First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, it's almost the same stories that's being repeated. We have Saul, we have David, and then Solomon. And it, it talks more about how Judah, the southern portion of the kingdom, went into captivity. Now that's the, that's the historical version of it. Come to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. Look at the last verse. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. So, what do we have as we press towards the end times? We have the Jews blinded spiritually. We have the Jews heading towards this corrupt connection with the Antichrist. But, right, as the Jews are in trouble, heading for this tribulation time, look at the last verse in Second Chronicles. Thus saith Cyrus king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God be with him, and let him go up. Israel's gone into captivity. They're oppressed. And somebody's told to go up. Whoever's on God's side, any of God's people, time to go up. There's a rapture. A picture of a rapture. What happens right after that? The book of Ezra. You know what they do in the book of Ezra? They rebuild the temple. You know what has to happen for the last days? There has to be a temple rebuilt. Revelation 11 talks about it. Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus talked about it. The temple has to be rebuilt. It's rebuilt in the book of Ezra. It's a picture. Rapture happens. Let him go up. God's people go up. Now, historically, it's, it's the people... God's people that went to Persia, they, they were in Babylon, they were in captivity. Let them go back up to Jerusalem to fix it. But types, pictures, we're getting into the meat of the word. Let them go up. Rapture, then rebuild the temple. What happens after that? After they rebuild the temple, the end of the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, you have a revival that is led by Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra's preaching the word. Nehemiah is more of the political man Ezra is a scribe of the law of God. He knows his Bible real well. So these two guys coordinate their efforts, and a revival breaks out amongst the Jews. So Ezra rebuilds the temple, and then there's two witnesses that revive the nation. 
after the temple is rebuilt, Revelation 11, Revelation 11, go check it out, two witnesses show up and they preach. The world hates them, but they, they spark a revival, at least within Jerusalem. It creates a remnant of Jews saved. And that brings us to the book of Esther. Esther's a fascinating book. The word God does not appear in the book of Esther, but you can see the hand of God all through it. In the book of Esther, you have a Jewish, uh, forgive me, a Gentile queen, Vashti, who is pushed out of, the, out, out of the, her royal estate. So this Gentile queen goes out. The time of the Gentiles coming to a close, that's going to happen right at the end of the tribulation. And a Jewish queen, Hadassah, we know her as Esther, she is ascending to the throne. So Vashti is pushed out, Gentiles going, fading out, and the Jews ascending to a place of primacy. Now, while God is bringing this Jewish queen to a prominent position, there is a man named Haman that gets introduced in Esther chapter 3. And Haman, oh, he hates the Jews. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Which, by the way, I found this interesting. If you take the book of Esther, right? And you look at the first seven chapters. But again, I'm taking seven years of tribulation. So you have the Jews, or forgive me, I'm sorry. The Gentiles are starting to fade out, Vashti. The Jews are starting to come back and ascend up. So that's Esther. If you have the first seven chapters of Esther, chapter 3, right? Look at, look at how many verses there are. There's 15. Yeah, The middle verse, verse 8. Verse 8. That's the middle verse, if, if you count both ways, right? Seven on each side, the middle verse. Look what happens right in the middle of the seven chapters, right in the middle of the seven years. Haman, picture the Antichrist. Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. You know what Haman says? King, let's kill all the Jews. Right in the middle of chapter 3, in the middle of the seven chapters, in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist is going to rise from the dead and he will try to kill all the Jews. Exactly the way it's laid out. You know how it ends? Look at, look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, look at verse 10. At the end of the seven years... Jesus comes back and the Antichrist, the beast, is thrown into the lake of fire. He dies. Look at, at the end of chapter 7, verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows. Haman dies at the end of chapter 7. I find that fascinating. Fascinating. Chapter 8, 9, 10, you see the establishment of the Jews. And it's not just in Israel. But you see how the Jews find favor all over the world, all the kingdoms that Ahasuerus reigned over now gets this Jewish, I want to say, flavor, right? They're aware of God's people exactly as it's going to happen in the millennium. There will be a Jewish, I want to say flavor, but they will be recognized, right? The Jewish people will be recognized all over the world as God's chosen people. Now, that brings us to the book of Job. And the book of Job gives us an inside, in-depth look 
at what the Jews are going to go through during the latter half of those seven years. Now, remember, I just gave you that thing in Esther. Right in the middle, Haman tries, he devises a plan to wipe them out. That happens right in the middle of the seven years. Seven years, if you break it up into months, is 84 months. So 42 on this side, 42 on the other side. Do you know how many chapters are in the book of Job? 42 chapters. Come to Job chapter 42. Job 42. Look at verse 10. Job 42.10. You know what happens. In chapter 1, Satan says, God, let me at him. And God says, you can, you can go for him, but here are the boundaries. Now, you know the story. Satan attacks. He's trying to get Job to curse God. Do you know what's going to happen? Revelation 12, Satan comes down from heaven, and he knows he has but a short time. He has a little space, and he attacks. And for 42 months, the Antichrist tries to wipe out the Jews. For 42 chapters, you have Satan attacking. But by the end of it, 42.10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. What a strange way to word that. Tell me, when was Job ever in captivity? Out of all the things he suffered, he wasn't in captivity as we would normally know it. But the Jews, for 42 months, they will be in captivity. They'll be out there in the wilderness hiding from the Antichrist. It says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So at the end of the 42 months, Job gets double. Double. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. you got to see this. Look at Isaiah 61. This is worth looking at the cross-reference. Isaiah 61, verse 7. Isaiah 61, verse 7. He says here, For your shame, talking to Israel, For your shame ye shall have double. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Because of everything that Israel is going to go through as a nation, God says, I'm going to give you double. That is exactly what Job got. Exactly. You know, back to the book of Job. Now, Job ends up with double. That, that brings us to the end of the tribulation time and into the millennial time. You know what the book of Psalms is? Written by David, the conquering king. The book of Psalms, over and over again, look at Psalm chapter 48. Psalm 48. I'm just going to show you one verse. There are literally hundreds of verses like this throughout the book of Psalms. It is the major theme. Not the only, but the major theme in it. It's Over and over, David talks about the millennial kingdom. He talks about the time when the Messiah will reign on the earth. So, uh, Psalm 48 verse 1, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, the city of the great King? That's Matthew chapter 5. Jesus preached that in the Sermon on the Mount. When is Jerusalem right now? You can hardly say it's the city of the great King. Right? Jesus is not 
governing that city now, but one day he will when he comes back. And the book of Psalms gives us this great theme of God reigning on and over the earth. And this, we hit the reset button one more time. Because within the book of Psalms, the primary thing you find is this millennial reign. But there is also a very thematic uh, purpose of, of establishing the first coming, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. There are several mentions of that in the book of Psalms. You have a reference to the, to the, uh, to the Son of God being begotten, to his birth, to his life, to his crucifixion, to his death, his resurrection. It's all prophesied in the book of Psalms. So you have the death, burial, and resurrection in Psalms. You know what you have in Proverbs? So you have death, burial, resurrection. Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's all about wisdom. Now, you can turn to it if you'd like, but I'm just going to read it to you quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7. Listen to this. Howbeit, Paul says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. You know what the wisdom of God is? It is the predestinated plan for the body of Christ. It was hidden in the Old Testament. They couldn't see in the Old Testament. They couldn't see the end of these things. But it's revealed now. Paul says, now we're telling you about this great plan, this very smart, wise plan. So after the death, burial, and resurrection, Proverbs, wisdom of God is revealed. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, look at chapter 12. You know what happens in Ecclesiastes? Solomon the one giving us this wisdom. Solomon, right? Bless his heart, Solomon, towards the end of his life, I've already mentioned, he backslid. But he still had this wisdom. And he went about testing everything. He tried everything to see what was good. Is it better to live life cautiously or is it better to just live, you know, according to your whimsy? And he tested it all. Chapter 12, verse 8, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. In the end of the church age, death, burial, resurrection, Psalms. Proverbs, wisdom of God is revealed. And then Ecclesiastes, the backsliding of the church, but we still have the truth with us. It's been ordained and set up in, in the Bible. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The church is an apostasy, corporately speaking, as a whole, but we still have a final authority. We trust the words of truth. We trust the book. We don't trust the preacher. We trust the book. Verse 11, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. They come from the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Know your Bible. How does it end? After this backslidden church who still has a Bible, still knows about the plan of God, has this wisdom, how does it end? So Song of Solomon, chapter 2. We're coming to the end, don't worry. We're almost done. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Look with me at verse number 13. 
as the body of Christ descends into apostasy and there's a great falling away prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, one day the beloved, uh, uh, I want to say bride, but uh, the one you're engaged to, the espoused, the espoused of Christ, his, his bride, he's going to call her away. Song of Solomon 2, verse 13, The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. You know what the man says to the woman? Arise, come away. You know what you're going to hear one day real soon? My bride, come up hither, and we fly away. Off we go. But when we get up to heaven, look at chapter 6, verse 10. Song of Solomon 6, verse 10. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Woo! He compared his wife to an entire army. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the marital aspect of that, but you know what happens after we head up to heaven? We have the marriage and in Revelation 19, it says we, we dress ourselves in white robes and we become the army that follows Jesus back to the earth to fight the battle of Armageddon. So the, the bride of Christ becomes the army. Incredible. Incredible. Isaiah. So what, what do we have in Isaiah? Now, now here's where I'm going to... All, I'm shortening this on purpose. This is where we could take another three, four hours. Isaiah to Malachi, all of the prophets speak of one major thing. Israel is in trouble. 